Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you leave your questions in the comments section of my videos, I may or may not get them, and I don't make a practice now of going through those. But if you send it to me by email uh, at the address which is in the description section to this video, then I will be more than happy to get your question into the queue. Uh, this week, I wanted to promote my critical merchandise site. That is still a thing. I have still put merch out there for you guys uh, with uh, illustrations, slogans, logos, critical thinking, Scientology, amusing stuff. Link is at uh, the Spreadshirt link is below in the description section there. And of course, critical thinking is always in season and is a great gift as are uh, humorous Scientology uh, and other um, amusing things that you can put on shirts, hats, mugs, whatever. Okay, so you guys can check that out. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and get to your questions. SV, do management staff really go through every org's stats every week and pay close attention to each one? It seems like it would be a mountain of data every week, so I wonder how management would handle it. Thanks for the question. And the stat evolution, as it is called, is a famous thing in Scientology. It happens every Thursday from 2 o'clock on through the rest of the evening. Thursday is a unique day in the world of Scientology. Hubbard said that the week, the financial week and the statistic week ends Thursday at 2 p.m. And so that's when your week ends, and then at 2.01, you are now getting going on the new week. And statistics are counted every single week. And these statistics are reported by every single org, every single mission, every single field group, every activity that has a Scientology organization to it that is connected officially with the Church of Scientology is uh, made to report their statistical numbers on Thursday. They do these through emails or telexes, and they are sent up to the central management. Now, there are different units in Scientology, so there are different senior executives overseeing the different branches or domains of it. So you have the orgs, the Class 5 orgs, or the city-level churches, that's the management I used to do. I used to I worked at a city level church, and then when I went into the Sea Org, I went to managing these churches, and I was in Western the Western United States. Um, I did a whole video breaking down the whole organizational structure. It's a long, complicated process to understand the whole situation or the whole structure. It's not that long, but it's you know there's a little bit to it. So I will um, link to that video in the description section here, but. Uh, and I don't want to re-explain that whole management structure, but as far as the, the 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 statistics answering your question here, let's go ahead and get to that. Um, missions have their own reporting system. Field groups have their own reporting system, and orgs have their own reporting system. So I was involved with the statistical management of the orgs, so um, which is the mainline activity of Scientology. So I was pretty much right on the pulse of you know what was going on. And um, West U.S. has more orgs, I believe, at least it did when I was managing it, than I think any other continental zone. You know, Europe, East U.S., um, Latin America is a zone, Canada is a zone. So you have these different geographic areas. And everything west of the Mississippi was West U.S., including Hawaii. So we, there were 34 orgs 
um, in that in that group when I was managing it. There might be more or less now, but that's that was the number then, and that included the Sea Org organizations, the service organizations in in the PAC base at at, at Big Blue, the Big Blue buildings. There is the American St. Hill organization. There was the Advanced Organization in Los Angeles. And um, that's two organizations. But ASHO, the American St. Hill, was divided into two different organizations. I think they have combined those now. And it's just one single Sea Org organization now. But at the, at the time, it was Day and Foundation. Uh, okay, so 34 orgs. That is a lot of statistical information coming up because every single org reports something on the order of about probably 70 to 90 statistics. I'm, I, I, you know, I can't remember exactly. Um, the different types of orgs have different, like the Sea Org orgs have different statistics that they would report. Um, a lot of the same statistics that the Class 5 orgs, the city-level churches have, but also their own statistics. So, because um, they're delivering different kinds of services. So, um, we would get these statistics in, and they would go into a computer system, right? The telexes would come in with all the numbers, and they had to be formatted a certain way so they could auto-feed into the data files in the data system. And we had a, um, a, a bureau in the management organization that was responsible for collecting and collating and reporting these statistics every week. That was the data bureau. And um, Excuse me. So we would get those. They, they were the ones who were getting all the chasing all the numbers in and then printing graphs showing the comparatives for this week to the last 12 weeks. They were that we would normally look at the graphs on a 12 week trend uh, or look at them on a on a graph that went that went 12 weeks. We paid attention uh, at the continental level. We paid attention to the three week trend. How was, how was the, the trend of the graph over the last three weeks? Three dots, or sorry, four dots, three lines um, were the numbers, were the, were the main things we were adjudicating or looking at. So, okay, so for example, um, Santa Barbara sends up uh, a number of statistics, including, let's say, the well-done auditing hours, the number of hours of auditing that occurred um, that week in the church. Okay, let's say there was 30 hours this week, and the week before there was 35. So the number goes down on a one week. So at the org level, they're watching the statistics on a on a weekly basis. They're not looking at the trends so much as they're looking every single week, right? So if the um, if the trend of their graph is going, you know, up, good. Um, but if the but uh, but if the, but it's the one week they're paying attention to, so um, it could be up on three, but down on one, right? It could go up, up, and then down a little bit this week. Well, the org's going to be applying a a danger or emergency condition. They're going to be doing something, you know, to get that graph going back up for that week. But at a management level, we're looking at a trend of three weeks, and it's going uptrending. So for as far as we're concerned, things are going better. Things are going okay. They're, they're trending in the right direction. The theory behind this is that uh, the orders that we issue are going to take time to implement, and they're going to take time to have an effect. So we are managing by trends. This was Hubbard's theory on this. And the next level of management up, the international management guys who are watching all the orgs all over the world, 
they look at six-week trends because the orders they issue have to filter through us and then go down to the orgs and take time to implement and execute and, and see the results. So um, so you see the little system there is the local is one week, the continental is three weeks, and the international is six weeks. And um, we would have to grade all the statistics for each organization on these trends. But it wasn't so much a matter of labeling whether they were, you know, affluence or normal or emergency or danger or whatever the condition that was that we were going to be assigning. It was that we also, management is not just one big glump of people. It's its, its own organization. Um, and, and we called it, it, when I worked in it, it was the Flag Operations Liaison Office or the FOLO. That was the division of the management organization that dealt with the orgs. I worked in FOLO, so I was a FOLO staff member, um, part of a larger organization called a CLO, or Continental Liaison Office, which housed all the management units for the missions, the orgs, the field groups, all of it. So what we would do is on Thursdays, um, all the stats would come in, and we would spend Thursday afternoon um, getting all these stats compiled because my statistics um, and the manager's statistics depend on the totals of all of the orgs combined, right? We would either combine them and do averages of, of various uh, statistics and various numbers, or we would just total the number of, like, for example, for me, I was managing um, the technical areas of the orgs. So my job was to manage the classrooms and the auditing counseling work. So I kept track of the student points because students in classes make student points. That's the statistic they keep. And I would track the well-done auditing hours, and I would track what another statistic called the value of services delivered. For that week, what was the total monetary value of the completed services in that organization? So every course that was completed, you know, a person pays, okay, a person pays $2,000 for a course. They complete the course. That's $2,000 in VSD for that week that they finished the course. If they finished an auditing intensive, a 12 and a half hour block of auditing in that week, that's an intensive completion. An intensive, let's say, is $2,500 or $3,000. So the VSD, the value of services delivered for that intensive, $3,000. So the class that was completed was worth 2000 The auditing intensive that was completed was worth 3000 VSD. So combined, the org reports 5000 VSD for that week. That comes up to me. I combine that 5000 from that org with however much VSD from all the other orgs, and that's my total VSD for the week. And I mark my own graph up. You know, it, it, did the graph go up? Did it, did it go straight? Or did it go down? And I apply a condition myself to that statistic for the week uh, based on, you know, the, the total uh, across the, cont, the continent. And that was my statistics were value of services delivered, student points, and well-done auditing hours. So those were the statistics I was most closely monitoring. And then I would send orders. What would happen is I would see these statistics for all the 34 orgs. I would also see the sub-statistics. Those were the main statistics. Those were called the gross divisional statistics, the, the ones that really mattered. 
but those statistics were made up of sub-statistics that we would also be tracking, like number of people on service that week, the bodies in the shop is what it was called, how many people were actually on service that week in, the, in each org, or the student completions, how many completions were there for that week. Like, let's say that there were five completions from one the week before, so the graph goes you know, way up, but the value of services delivered goes down. Well, I'm very happy that they have more course completions, but I'm not happy that the value of those completions was not as good as it was the week before. And I would look into that and I would find one reason for that might be that they didn't deliver a whole lot of auditing that week. So they didn't get anybody completed on any auditing intensives. And the coursework that they completed were for lower, smaller courses, so they weren't, they weren't worth as much. So good on the course supervisor for getting lots of completions, but not so good for not having the VSD, the value of those completions, be very good. And not good at all on not having any auditing happening, right? So my orders to the org, based on my analysis of their statistics and the trends of how they're doing on not just a one-week but a three-week trend, remember, um, determines what my orders down to the tech area of that individual org are going to be. And I'm going to analyze every tech division of every one of these 34 orgs, and I'm going to issue orders accordingly. Each division of the org has a management person doing that, and then the org as a whole has a programs chief, and that person is responsible for the whole organization and all the things going on in it. And they talk to the executive directors of the orgs or the flag rep in the org, the management representative, and they issue orders to them and they tell them what to do. And also part of the Thursday stat evolution is the org executive directors, all 34 of them in the West US or wherever, you know, there's like, I don't know, 10 or 12 orgs in, in Canada or something. So all of them are doing this in Canada too, right? Um, they send up their battle plan. The executive director for each org sends up his weekly battle plan. What are they going to do this week? How are they going to tackle? You know, the, the ED has to do his own stat analysis at his level on the one-week slants of the graphs. And they send that up to the program's chief for approval. And if the program's chief looks it over and the, and the ED is saying, hey, we did great this week, everything's wonderful, we're going to apply this affluence condition because the money was up and the statistics were up and we're all happy, and the program's chief looks at the statistics and they're all downtrending, even if they're up on one, they're going down on three, the program's chief might go, hey, man, uh, you know, really good on your one-week things, but, you know, things are not going well right now on trend and you better be paying attention to this and this and this because I want to see these statistics skyrocket this week, right? That might be the tone or flavor of a, of, a, of a response that the ED might get to his BP. Most of the time, the BPs, the battle plans, were approved. There wasn't a whole lot of editing or modification necessary. But um, depending on the situation or depending on maybe some management imperative or some big program that's being run, we might tell the EDs, yeah, I know you said you're going to do this, but actually what you're going to do is this and this and this because we need you, you know, your priorities are a little off or we need you doing these other things. So this is kind of how management works in Scientology. It's a very, if you kind of get this, you know, everything I'm saying here, then it's kind of like it's a very short term operation. It's run 
on a very short leash, a one-week trend, a three-week trend. These are not long periods of time in any business, but in the Church of Scientology, a week is an eternity. Every day counts, and every week counts, and you know, you're really always, you know, taka, 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 let's go, let's get that production going. So management is running these organizations on a pretty tight leash, running them on a weekly basis. And, um, and then the continental areas are being run on, um, on these three-week basis, and, and like I said, internationally, six weeks. So, so it is a mountain of data that comes in every week, and we stayed up all night on Thursdays to deal with this every single week. Management had a special schedule where on Thursdays we were up until four or five in the morning. Um, and then we got to sleep in and report to post on Fridays at one o'clock after lunch. And that was every week. So every Thursday was Statev and every week in management, um, Thursday night was a late night and you just kind of acclimate to it. And we would kind of um, load up a bit, right? Kind of do some carb loading uh, after, say, 10, 30, 11 o'clock when everybody else is going to bed. We go to the canteen <laughs> and spend some money and get some chips or some Cokes or something. I used to really load up. I went in there. I started doing that work when I was 25 years old and I was kind of get up and go and I would just load up and and then be up all night. Uh, over the years, the, the need to load up <laughs> reduced a bit as I got a little older and I wasn't uh, wasn't uh, quite on such a sugar high all night as I had been uh, when I first started this activity. But it was it took some getting used to to be able to stay up all night uh, doing that management stuff. So that was the management drill. That was Statev. And that's kind of how it works every week. And it was like that at every management unit because um, the international guys are doing the same thing on Thursday nights. They're staying up and replying to uh, weekly, you know, battle plans coming up from the Continental Chiefs, right? Our FOLO, uh, our guy, our CEO, our commanding officer would send up his BP to his opposite person up, up the line, and they would have their own version of a statev where they would have to respond to us. So, you know, they weren't telling the orgs what to do. They were telling us what to do. So they would have their own parallel, you know, uh, sort of mirror image stat of that we were doing with the orgs, they were doing with us and, and on up the line. So that's kind of how that works. And I hope that answers your question. TJ Feeney, just watched your critical clip video about businesses run by Scientology or by Scientologists, and it got me wondering. Would you have a problem using one of these businesses, given your experiences? Also, if the business owner knew who you were, a declared SP, would they be willing to deal with you? Would a Scientologist dentist refuse to treat an urgent dental issue you may have simply due to your public stance on Scientology? I hate to not support small businesses, but I wouldn't like to know my money would indirectly end up with Scientology when this parishioner donates it or buys courses with it. Okay, TJ, thank you for this question. And um, no, I would not be um, giving my business to any Scientologist-owned company or operation for exactly the reason you said in your question. I don't want my money going back to Scientology. And also, yes, they would definitely have a problem serving me. Um, it, would, it would be uh, a discriminatory act for sure. You know, it would be discrimination for them to not service me simply because of a personal, you know, church-based vendetta, but that's basically how it would run. 
So, um, and this is this has happened. I mean, there were there have been people who have been declared who have had to change accountants, um, change business partners, leave businesses uh, entirely as owners or co-owners, um, or not be able to get serviced by Scientologists uh, running their businesses, whether it's accountants, chiropractors, vets, um, store owners, haircutters. I mean, I've seen all of this. So. Um, yeah, when you're declared, it's a full disconnection. So they don't. So I don't get to get my hair cut by a Scientologist anymore. I don't get to get my teeth cleaned by a Scientology dentist anymore, right? Um, and I would recognize a Scientology business right away if I went into one because they don't tend to hide it. I mean, there are indicators, as I've said in earlier, in other questions, and as you saw on the Critical Clips channel. Um, you know, there are ways you can see. I mean, they'll have Hubbard's picture up, or they'll have Hubbard issues and our books and stuff around or they'll 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 have statistic graphs up or they will be talking in Scientologies you know there's lots of ways you can tell and um uh and I I would definitely not be um you know uh giving them my business so there you go logamug what advice would you give people to help break out of self-hating or victim mentality behavior over poor life choices? Thanks for the question. Uh, this is a tough one, of course, and I have given lots of advice over the years about getting over cult experiences, recovering from that, acclimating back into society. And I know my advice changes over time, and it probably should as I learn more and experience more. And what I can say now about this is that I have an intensely practical, or at least I try to have an intensely practical view of life, because life is basically what we make it. And there are a lot of expectations and a lot of uh, responsibilities and obligations sort of laid on us from a very early age as to what success is, how we should measure success in our life, what is a good life, what is a happy life, what is happiness, what is joy, you know, these kind of things. How should we approach, be approaching, excuse me, how should we approach life? And I've, I've you know, of course, experienced all of that. And, uh, and thought, you know, for many, many years that I was saving the world. So I thought I was right on track with doing the things I was supposed to be doing to have a happy and successful life. I mean, what could be better than saving the world? What could be better than pursuing the dream of, of helping everyone universally and, and truly making a positive impact on the entire planet? I mean, that's, that's a pretty big you know, star high kind of goal. And that was what I was operating on. So I thought, you know, there we go. I'm, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I should be doing to have the best possible life. And then I find out, you know, at 42 years old that it was all based on a bunch of lies and I had been taken for a ride. Um, I know a lot of people have very negative reactions. Uh, I sure did. You know, when they learn something like that, and it can be a devastating blow, it can be very, very difficult to deal with. Um, it is uh, emotionally devastating. It, it destroys your trust, your loyalty, your faith in other people. Um, it, it makes you reexamine everything you've ever thought was true or important, or at least it should. 
You know, this these are the opportunities for us to really self-reflect and sort of introspect a bit is when these disastrous situations happen to us where we are thrown out of our bubble and made to confront the fact that we were living a bit of a lie or we were living a bit of a Pollyanna existence, you know, sort of everything's great and wonderful and it couldn't be better than this in the best of all possible world sort of thing. You know, when you bust out of that and you kind of come to back to reality, right, and you check into hotel reality, then you can start feeling victim, like you mentioned in your question here, where I'm going with this is you can start hating on yourself or you can start feeling very victimized. Uh, you know, again, a personal experience. I, I, I have run these gauntlets and I have um, it, it, all the time. Like this is not a one-time deal, right? You go through this over and over again. You have ups and downs and ups and downs and those downs can be pretty low sometimes um it's not fun and i and i'm not going to pretend that it is but the advice i can give is to is to use those opportunities first off look at them as opportunities look at these changes and these 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 uh devastating periods of loss or grief or um change as opportunities because they are that. Um, it is very hard to see when you're in the middle of it, of course. I'm not talking about, you know, the loss of a loved one being an opportunity. I'm talking about the loss of a cult belief system, okay? I'm talking about the loss of, you know, a bubble world existence. When you when you come out of that, you can start getting into a bit of a self-loathing or a, or a hating thing because you feel you're stupid, you should have known better, hindsight, bias, is what kicks in where you think now with all the information you have that you should have known better. Yet the fact of the matter is, and one of the things that you really, really need to accept, took me a long time to get my head around this, but I really feel this is important, is that you couldn't have done anything differently than what you did. There, there is no going back and changing it. So, so regret is for the birds. It is not useful to guilt trip yourself or run this hindsight bias on yourself and tell yourself how stupid you were, how ignorant you were, what a what a patsy you were, what a what a boob you were. Right? You don't, you don't need to do any of that because there isn't any other way that the past could have worked itself out. It, it, those were the circumstances that caused you to be where you're at now. And the reason I say it's an opportunity is because now you can use that knowledge, you can use that experience and that hurt and pain to make sure that you get wiser and don't let it happen to you again or at least make a real dedicated effort in that direction. And that is what can impel education, some, some self-education, some counseling, some advice from friends and family, some listening more than talking. Um, very, very important. You know, I talk about how getting people out of a cult is all about how you got to listen to them and you got to let them have their, 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 their say what they want to say and, and, and have, you know, their views and things. And then you can start working on them to change it. That requires a lot of listening, not a lot of talking on your part. You want them talking. Well, when you come out of a cult, my advice is kind of shift that around, right? You want to talk to the degree that you need catharsis. You need to talk to people and explain your situation. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, so I'm sorry, I'm not just suggesting necessarily to just shut up or clam up. 
But what I mean by listening as well is when other people are telling you things, either about yourself or about their own experiences or their life ruins or problems or or screw ups, you know, when they're commiserating with you or sharing with you, um, you know, understand that they're talking from their experience and you can use it or not, but but be open to listening to other people and their advice and, and direction, because sometimes it's very, very helpful. You know, if we knew everything we needed to know, then we would never have to talk to anybody else. But we do need to talk to other people because we don't know everything we need to know. And so the one of the biggest adjustments coming out of these cultic situations or, um, you know, poor life choices is that we can hold on to this one, a need to be right about it. Uh, and two, uh, or we give that up and then it's just nothing but we're horrible, awful, terrible people, right? We, you know, we're, we're, I'm so stupid. I'm so dumb. How could I? Um, you want to get over that as quickly as you can. It's not constructive. It's not positive. It's not helpful in any way. Um, you know, to the degree it makes you, I guess I could say to the degree it, 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 it convinces you that to not repeat those poor life choices or make those mistakes. Okay, good. But otherwise, you know, kind of skip it because the rest of your life, see today and tomorrow are wide open. They're wide open for you. So many things are possible. Really, an infinity of things are possible for you into the future. You don't, because you acted one way yesterday, doesn't mean you have to continue acting that way tomorrow, okay? So, you know, the thing about, um, about poor life choices is that we learn from them and we uh, determine to not repeat them and we... Um, and we move on and we hopefully can keep as positive uh, an attitude as possible. And that for me is only possible by realizing that my future is open and and the goals and um, and what goals, I guess, you know, the meaning that my life has or the purpose that, that a life has is self-assigned. You can you can make your own purpose. You can make your own game, so to speak, in life and and then operate on that. And that is the that's my that's where my advice goes is to create a new game, a new purpose, a new meaning for your life. Don't try to get other people to give you purpose or meaning or define yourself compared to other people or try to emulate other people to the degree that you're trying to be them that's that's what poor those are poor life choices those are bad ideas you know so once you get you know for me getting out of the cult and defining myself by you know L Ron Hubbard's standards David Miscavige's standards Scientology standards getting rid of all that now i can define myself by my own standards i don't have to listen to anyone else tell me how i should be or what i should do and um it's taken me a long time to get to that place and i'm still of course affected by other people and I'm still, you know, able to be talked to, manipulated, you know, influenced by other people. But I am much more in the driver's seat as far as how I make my life choices and, and where, what direction my life's going in now. And, and I have a very independent attitude about it. Um, and I think that these are good things. And I think that these are things that anyone should develop and that critical thinking is part of that and all the rest. So, 
I'm, you know, I hope I'm not rambling here. At least I hope I'm not coming across like I'm rambling because I, I, I've been trying to give some specific pieces of advice here, and I hope they're coming across, and I hope that this helps. Um, feel free to ask me or cl to clarify anything if I've if I haven't been clear, but I hope that this answer was useful. Lauren Gray. I learned that in Phoenix, Arizona, we have a Scientology, quote unquote, historical site, which is a modest home from about the 60s that has been preserved as a time capsule by the group. No visitors or tours are given. It is just maintained as is, complete with a vintage car and lawn chair. I've now come to find out that LRH lived all over the place, and the Phoenix home must not be that special. Just how many sites are, quote, LRH historical homes, quote, and being maintained, and for what purpose? Might David Miscavige or other bigwigs have their personal items memorialized too? Does it cost Scientology very much to maintain all these empty homes that LRH lived in? Are there other LRH memorabilia items preserved? Do these have any similarities to relics like in Christianity, e.g. the toe of a saint? Hey, Lauren, thanks for your question. As far as I know, these LRH historical homes are a, are a project that the church engaged in. I think in the 90s or 2000s, they started putting these things together. There is one in South Africa, in Johannesburg, where Hubbard lived for a while. There is one in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I believe there's one in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And I think there's a couple other sites. Oh, there's, a, there's the—no, that's the founding church. That's a different property. Anyway, there are these— Homes. I don't know off the top of my head which other ones might exist. Hubbard was definitely a wanderer, and he got around. Maybe they even got the place that he used to live in in Seattle. Um, I can't remember on that one. But these are meant. These were meant to be uh, little museum pieces, and the idea was that the church was going to offer um, tours, and they were, you know, you're going to be able to walk this path and you could, you know, fly around and, and follow in Hubbard's footsteps. And this was supposed to be some kind of a, a, it was supposed to have appeal to Scientologists mostly, but it would also be a public front thing for, you know, in increasing the public image and, uh, promote L. Ron Hubbard as a person. That is a, that is a strategy in the church is a, is a mainline one is get public acceptance of L. Ron Hubbard. And through his fiction works, through his philosophy, through his, you know, humanitarian efforts, et cetera, um, they, they want to make L. Ron Hubbard this famous guy. And they, you know, they want to make him this world-renowned philosopher and writer and artist and photographer and mariner and all these other, you know, professions that he was supposedly a master at. So, um, so the, the Holmes thing was kind of a, a, a part of that overall effort. And um, as I understand it, two Sea Org members are assigned to these properties to maintain and care for them, be tour guides, that kind of thing. And if the homes aren't open, because, you know, of course, COVID this last year, I'm sure, uh, shut that whole thing down. But I, they weren't very popular. I mean, these are not well-known things. And as far as from your question, they're not even promoting for tours anymore. So... You know, so the property just sits there. I'm sure they own it outright. They're not paying rent or leasing them. And they really only have to accommodate two Sea Org members to keep the place up. So, you know, Scientology tends to go in fits and starts. It tends to, you know, go strong and hard and then peter out real fast. And so I'm pretty sure this whole effort with these homes was was has already petered out, as we've seen and uh, maybe it'll be revived, 
but it'll probably just, you know, continue puttering along. It's a way for the church to invest some of its money um, back in on itself in a, in a way that is easily demonstrable to the IRS that is a promotional action and something they're doing to promote the church and its founder. So they um, definitely, it's a legit way to spend the tax-free income so that they can continue being tax-free, right, have their tax-exempt status, and a way to promote Hubbard. So that was the intention with it. And like everything else in Scientology, of course, it's a bit of an utter failure. Mark P. When I was in Scientology back in the early 70s, Hubbard's first wives were fairly well-known about, though not often discussed. The same was true for his eldest son, LRH Jr., a.k.a. Nibs. From what I'm seeing now, it looks as though much of this part of Hubbard's life has been erased or covered up to those who are active members now. Am I seeing this correctly? Also, even when I was still in, other people seemed to get erased after they were declared. I'm curious how Hubbard's children, Mary Sue, and other prominent past Scientology leaders are presented now, such as Yvonne Gench, founder of the Celebrity Center Network. Okay, thanks for the question, Mark. Yeah, people get erased. That's a common thing in cults. It's, in fact, it's almost, uh, you know, uh, characteristic. It's almost a, a, a defining characteristic of a destructive cult is that they forget you. They, they, you know, do away with you. They, they don't want to have anything to do with people who have left the group, who have uh, been declared suppressive in the case of Scientology, because. Those are persona non grata, and we don't want to have those types around. We also have a situation in Scientology where David Miscavige has been on a tear to get rid of anyone loyal to Hubbard, not loyal to him, uh, or you know, people who could have could have the spotlight put on them rather than on Miscavige. So you might, you might have noticed from David Miscavige's website and the way he is talked about as this supreme ecclesiastical leader and all this other nonsense that the church puts out about him, that it's all about Miscavige now, right? Miscavige is like the, 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 the ace of aces. And so he can't have people like Yvonne Gensch, Heber Gensch, you know, some of the old guard guys uh, the original Class 12 auditors that Hubbard trained, almost every one of them has been gotten rid of. Like all these people, these, these luminaries in Scientology have been gotten rid of because Miscavige doesn't want to share the spotlight with anybody but himself. So, um, and it, there is the other matter, of course, which is that when these people, when their names come up, then you might start asking questions about those earlier time periods. You know, Yvonne Gensch was the one who set up Celebrity Center Network, not L. Ron Hubbard. So if you get too deep into that, you're going to find out that L. Ron Hubbard actually had not, almost nothing to do with setting up the CC Network. But it all has to be L. Ron Hubbard's brainchild, right? So we can't have any of these contradictory nonsense. L. Ron Hubbard Jr., of course, uh, spoke out publicly, he committed a high crime. As far as Scientology is concerned, it's literally listed in their justice codes as a high crime to publicly debase or demean or talk out about Scientology. And L. Ron Hubbard's own son did that. So, of course, we're not going to have any memory of him. He's scum. And Mary Sue is mentioned in a number of lectures, but we had to edit all those out or there is a process of doing that because Mary Sue even has to be disappeared. And that is probably the toughest one of all because Hubbard talked about her all the time 
and because she was so crucial to every aspect of Scientology's development through the years. So, um, so it's a little hard to erase her, but they are working on it. And uh, yeah, you are definitely seeing these things correctly. This is just part and parcel of how cults operate, right? And, uh, and, and it has a lot to do with the personalities of L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige as well. All right, let's do some flash answers. Dr. Robert Tobias, in your best estimate, what percentage of Sea Org members have college degrees and hopefully have learned critical thinking skills? I'm going to say a very low percentage at this point. Maybe you know, some of the old school Sea Org members, the original guys, uh, might have come in from college or through college. But I'm going to I'm going to hazard a guess here. You asked for my best estimate, so I will say I'll say a fifth of the Sea Org probably have college degrees. And um, as I've come to learn, of course, just having a college degree is no guarantee that you have critical thinking skills or that you have learned anything about critical thinking. But there's a better chance of it because it's a little harder to get through some of these college courses without it. Um, but let's remember uh, what I have said about critical thinking with cults. And this is really important to remember, which is that you can be the best critical thinker on the planet. But if you're in a destructive cult mindset, if you're in an extremist headspace where you have gone all in on a cause, belief, agenda, organization, individual, relationship, whatever, you lose your ability to critically think about that topic the more heavily you go all in on it. And, and by the time you're in the extremist headspace, critical thinking on that subject is a thing of the past. Until you can get out of that, you know, extremist, uh, adoring, you know, uh, sort of uh, headspace, um, you're not going to be able to think very critically about that topic or person. So that's another important thing to remember about Sea Org members and cult members in general is their education has very little to do with why they're in the cult or how to get them out of it. Dusty Bills. When a Sea Org member leaves, do they get to keep their uniform or do they have to give it back? Nope, you got to give it back. Uh, they want their uniform parts back. I've not seen too many people leave with their Sea Org uniforms. Uh, some have in the past. And in fact, I think that's why they put the rule down on making sure they collect it. They go through all your stuff before you're allowed to leave the base. Um, now, of course, if you just take off in the middle of the night, that's a different story. But um, but if you're leaving officially, then you are going to be turning in your your uh, uniform parts. Jonathan Perry, let's hypothetically say that the planet is cleared and every single person is an OT8. What happens next? In the words of L. Ron Hubbard, after everybody, after this planet is cleared, we will go on to target two and clear another one. And eventually, many, many, many millennia down the track, we will have this universe cleared and impervious to the faults and traps of yesteryear. Those are the those are basically paraphrased L. Ron Hubbard's response to your question. Um, and that was from an L. Ron Hubbard executive director, LRHED uh, 339R. It was revised. That's why the R is there. But it's L. Ron Hubbard executive director or directive 339R, which was the birthday game issue. And uh, all of us had to read that hundreds of times, which is why I know it so well even now. And, um, and that's the goal. That's what clearing the planet is supposed to go to, is you clear this planet, and then we got a whole universe to clear. 
And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why Sea Org members sign billion-year contracts is because that's how long it's going to take to clear the whole universe. So there you go. All right, guys, that was our show for this week. I hope my answers were useful, informative, entertaining, uh, hopefully educational in some way. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for inviting me into your home this week. I very, very much appreciate your viewership and support, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.